So our text tonight is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks, and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all my hand then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's only going to get heavier as we keep going into this book. But if you remember a couple weeks ago, and I can't remember if you guys were here a couple weeks ago, but during the second week, I spoke about the three ways that most people cope with the fact that they're going to die from a secular, non-God mindset. There's three approaches, the escapist approach, the nihilistic approach, and the hedonistic approach. Basically, these ways to not have to deal with or, or choose to deal with the reality that death is coming and that there is nothing else to this life outside of that. And so the escapist approach is to fill your life full of things that just separate you from having to even think about it. I'll work a ton, I'll watch a bunch of sports, I can fill my life with focusing just on my family, but I'm just not going to think about the reality of it. The nihilistic approach is accepting the fact that life is actually meaningless, so morality doesn't exist at all, so it doesn't actually matter what anybody does. Very few people actually live in that space. That's where really evil, evil people live. True, true nihilist. But one approach that most people seem to take, because they're not really willing to buy into that whole nihilistic piece, and they're not really just to, totally wanting just to escape and pretend like it doesn't happen, is they end up in this hedonistic approach. So they admit to themselves, because they don't have God, that life has no real meaning, death is inevitable, so you might as well do whatever brings you pleasure here and now for tomorrow you may die. So what we're going to look at tonight specifically is this idea of hedonism and how selfishness plays a driving force in hedonism. So what is hedonism? And when I think of the word, I actually think of it mostly in that kind of sexual space, living a, a hedonistic, sexually driven lifestyle. But if we really look at the word, it actually encompasses more than that. Hedonism is a pursuit of pleasure. It's a philosophical theory that pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. So what a hedonistic approach does is it admits that life is basically meaningless because it takes away God, it takes God out of the equation, and that death is the actual only guarantee that you have. So it overcompensates while you're living this life here to try to fill as much of your life full of pleasure 
right? This becomes your defense mechanism from thinking about your impending death. You've accepted it's gonna happen, so make the most of every moment here, soaking up as much pleasure as you possibly can. Of course, we're surrounded by it everywhere, right? Social media, platforms like we were talking about earlier, OnlyFans, divorce culture, self-driven, all-inclusive vacations, and even the one that really stuck out with me is all-you-can-eat buffets. I mean, there is... <laughs> that was where we lost everybody. Man, it got a lot smaller after that sermon. But this, this pleasure-filled lifestyle, right, is, it's all around us. It's sought by so many, but it's also rewarded by culture. And one of the things that I found interesting when I was reading commentary on this passage was how much of it's written in first person. So in, in this section alone, in just these 11 verses, the word I is used 18 times. My is used 13 times, me is used four times, and myself is four times. So it's pretty evident that the preacher, as he's writing this, is incredibly self-focused. And so if we think about hedonism, if it's all about pleasing the self, then the root cause of hedonism is going to be selfishness. So if the preacher is focused on the vanity of hedonism and selfishness, it should be no surprise that when he's giving the examples of this, he's going to use a singular pronoun throughout this whole section. So we all know about selfishness and pleasure-seeking, just like the preacher writes about here. And my guess is that everybody here has experienced the pulls of, a, of that hedonistic philosophy at various points in our lives. It's not difficult when it's really pushed hard by society and culture, right? That he who has the most stuff wins. But even when our hearts are, are deep in our sin and, and we're pursuing this hedonistic philosophy, we still don't get to approach it at the same level that Solomon did. Verses 4 through 10 again. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for my toil. All of us have had hedonistic desires but very few of us have ever had the financial resources to make all of those desires come true. In Kings, 1 Kings 10, 14, and it was funny because I was just reading 1 Kings like two weeks ago, and I looked this up because of the number in it, but it says, now that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. I was curious, like how much is a talent of gold? 666 talents of gold is the equivalent of 25 tons of gold. That is how much Solomon received in one year. That is a lot of gold. So there was literally nothing that Solomon could not obtain. He was, if he was not the richest man in the world, he was one of the richest men in the world. I didn't look up to see whether or not he was. But we can make an assumption that he's in the top tier, if not at the top of that tier. I have this really unique perspective on Incredibly wealth, incredible wealth and hedonism because of the last two flying jobs that I had. My last full-time flying job had me interacting with people on a daily basis 
that were some of the richest people in the world. Wealth and riches like Solomon's that are incomprehensible. Chris and I did the math again yesterday just for fun as we were preparing for this. If we figured, if we said, okay, if we had 40 more years to live and we took the wealth of my previous employer and we broke that down by day, assuming no growth and no interest, we would have to spend $13.6 million a day to burn through their wealth every single day for the next 40 years. That is an incredible amount of money. This is the same place that Solomon's in. He literally cannot spend his money as fast as he is making it. There is nothing outside of his capacity to own. He made great works. He built houses and vineyards and gardens and parks. And then on top of it, he filled them full of fruit trees, which required water. So he brought pools of water to water his trees. He bought slaves, both male and female. And he had so many slaves that those slaves had more slaves that were living inside his household. That's how many people that he had. He had huge flocks, more than anyone before him. He gathered treasure. He had constant entertainment. He mentioned singers in there. Think about it this way. When Solomon wrote this, there was no high fidelity stereo system. If you wanted entertainment, you had to have people for entertainment. So he had singers. He had in-person, constant, high fidelity entertainment available at all times. This is no small feat because not only employing those people, you have to put them somewhere, you have to give them food, you have to give them shelter. Oh, and then on top of all that, not only did he have 700 wives, he had over 300 concubines on top of this. He literally had everything that the hedonists could ever dream of. He was living the hedonists' dream. And he tells us that in Ecclesiastes 2.10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. There was no pleasure that he kept his heart from, none. Anything that Solomon wanted, he had. And it was all his reward for his toil. His reward was any pleasure that he wanted. He toiled, and he selfishly rewarded himself. But then, in verse 11, he has this like reflection. He looks back on it all. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of it, this, this richest man in the world, every single pleasure he could ever imagine, all the women, all the food, all the booze, all the property, all the everything, and every bit of it was like vanity and striving after the wind. It was meaningless. So going back and thinking about my firsthand experience of this, we were surrounded very personally by the movers and shakers that control the world economy. Like that is not an understatement. These are the people that literally control the world economy, that incomprehensible wealth. People who can buy any pleasure at any time. You want a new house? Fine. New airplane? Wire transfer right now. And every single basic need was provided for. They don't even fill up their own cars full of gas. The people in the car shop do that. Or let's say you're going to go fly to one of your properties on a remote tropical island. You call property management up. Actually, have your pilots call property management up. And you say, well, we're going to be arriving at, at this property on this date. Will you ask uh, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so if they would like the normal food and the normal music and all of these things? And so when, when these people roll up at any of their properties, the lights are on, the temperature is set where you want it, the fridge has the food and the snacks you like, the wine cellar's got the wine that you like. All of your pleasures are provided for. 
you don't have to do anything for it. Same with if you wanted some entertainment. If you want entertainment, hire a band. One employer I worked for, for a meeting, hired One Republic for 35 people. The year before that, it was Bon Jovi. We don't even have to have the CD. We'll bring you the band. There is literally, unreal. it is unreal. It's totally unreal. There is literally nothing that these people can't afford. Anything that they want, at any time that they want it, they can have. And I, I literally mean anything, right? Every pleasure is available at every moment. And I don't even have to talk about the seedier stuff because everybody here has looked at the news. Any pleasure available at any time. But see, here's the deal about being in the inner circle. Everybody wants to be in the inner circle until you're in the inner circle. But what, what's interesting about being in the inner circle and being in the inner circle in an aircraft is that there's this weird phenomenon that takes place at 47,000 feet. People don't think they're being listened to. There's no show that needs to be put on because there's nobody in that airplane except the people and the pilots. So people are way more real when they're at altitude. And so you get to see all of the real parts of their personality. They speak more freely. They act more freely. I've seen some of the, the, the best known and wealthiest names act in some of the worst ways. But I've also listened to their stories, right? Because I've sat at their tables and I've been in their homes and I've gone in the back of the cabin to, to hear their woes. And the one thing that I can promise you is the people at the very top elite, the people that have every single pleasure available to them, just like Solomon, are not joyful people. They may look joyful on TV, and they may look joyful in, in photo ops, but in all of my worldly travels, I have yet to meet a billionaire that was truly a joyful person. Not even once. And so while the, the, the discussion of wealth and faith is important, it's not the primary goal today. The, the reason I want to bring that example up is to show you that there are still people of Solomon's influence and Solomon's wealth that live in our culture today. And their wealth and, and experience and pleasure-seeking is still vanity, just like Solomon's was. Because hedonism is actually driven by wealth, right? It's driven by selfishness. But what wealth can do is it can magnify and support it. That's what we see with Solomon and what we see with the people that I worked for. And the reminder is, if the people that can have every single pleasure still have find vanity in that, what means for the rest of us that cannot afford every single pleasure? And so in that text today, with, with all of the eyes, the preacher speaking in the first person, it was really no different than sitting at the dinner table with some of the people that we worked with when they rattle off everything they've done. What charity they've started, how much property they own, what cool collection of whatever they happen to collect that's rare and incredibly expensive. All the slaves, I mean the staff that they have. What type of parties they've thrown? I, 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 me, 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 me. See the connection? Nothing's new under the sun. The names and locations change, but behaviors don't. The people are different, but the sin is exactly the same. Selfishness drives hedonism. Wealth magnifies it. But here's the uncomfortable reality for people dead in their hedonism. It never, ever, ever delivers. And so selfishness, that, that concept of being chiefly concerned with one's own profit or pleasure is really at the root of this hedonistic desire, this hedonistic lifestyle. And I really wonder if there's ever been a culture that's more self-driven than ours. I mean, we really live in a world where selfishness drives everything. Feelings are now more important than facts. 
and selfish and hedonistic desires run the show. It's like what we were talking about before we started this tonight. So it's no wonder that as our culture continues to slip away from being God and and Christ-centered, that it's going to make that shift and then on the other side be more self-focused. And if you're really curious about how we got here, uh, a gentleman, Professor Carl Truman from Grove City College, um, wrote a really good book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's fascinating. And it walks you through how we got here. The Enlightenment, feminism, all of these pieces rolling together, goes through um, socialism and communism, and watches how you can watch cultures being shifted and changed to where we're now, it's the rise of the modern self. But like I said just a minute ago, the problem with the sin of selfishness and hedonism is that we'll never actually fully satisfy. The commentator I've been reading as I go through Ecclesiastes, he said, putting pleasure first fails, ironically, to give you pleasure. And this is true. I know this to be true in my personal life and then in the lives of the elite that I, I worked for. Because if you're living this hedonistically fueled selfish life, there's no way you're actually ever satisfied. Your heart always wants more. Tonight's amazing meal, which is going to be amazing, must be better than yesterday's amazing meal. This international vacation has to be better than the last international vacation. The newest house must be nicer or in a better location than the old newest house. The cars only only get nicer. The desires only get deeper. Today's pleasure must be better than yesterday's. It just doesn't ever stop. It's a continuous cycle. And when I I saw this firsthand, because so much of our job was shuttling these, these elite wealthy people to the next greatest faraway vacation spot, and then witnessing this next set of disappointments and dissatisfactions. There was always a list of disappointments and dissatisfactions. But the next time we were going to go somewhere else, it was going to be better, and it was going to fix the disappointments and dissatisfactions for last time, and then the cycle continues. Because if we're seeking pleasure only, we're always going to be let down. And see, this is what Solomon really realizes. This is what he means when he says there's nothing to be gained under the sun for his accomplishments. All the pleasures, all the desires fulfilled, anything that he could imagine, he then comes up and says, it's still vanity, it's emptiness. All it leaves me is wanting more. And so this is where we become blessed where Solomon isn't. It kind of becomes this theme as we go through these passages each week. But we have Christ. And so because selfishness is at the root of hedonism, then the cure for this mindset and the vanity that it leads to must be living a selfless life. But how do we get to a place of selflessness in a world of selfishness? It's easy. It's the cross. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Like really like deeply think about this. If anyone in the world could have come and demanded to have been served, it was Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Like, that is literally the one person that can make the demand to be like, all you peasants, serve me. But he didn't. He came to serve us. He flipped everything upside down. He is our primary example of what it looks like to live a selfless, servant-focused life. God came to serve us, not because we deserved it, but the exact opposite, because we didn't deserve it. There was no like quid pro quo. You guys really worshiped me well these last couple thousands of years. Here, I'll serve you now. That's not what it was. He came not out of quid pro quo, but he came because he loves us. He came because he loves us so much that not only did he come to serve, but he gave his life as a ransom for many. 
His death paid the price for our sins, for the many, for those in faith in Christ. If you were to look at Romans 5, 7 through 8, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. It's not even that committal, is he? But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Rarely will people give up their life for another person, mostly because of selfishness, because we're very attached to here. Rarely will we even give up our lives for a righteous person. That's about the only person we would probably think about it, with the exception of children and those people. But God gave up his life for us, the enemies of God, the constant failing sinners, because he loves us. So he came to serve not be served. He's the ultimate example of selflessness. And he reminds us of this with interactions with his disciples. So they're um, entering uh, Capernaum, right? And so Mark 9, 33 through 35, it says, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Like he didn't know. But they kept silent. (laughs) For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) It's like getting called out by your dad. Hey, What were you guys talking about in the back of the car there? I don't know. Hope Dad didn't hear us. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What a total flip on its head. All these people, I'm Jesus' best friend. I'm Jesus' best friend. I'm in the inner circle. I'm the cool guy. And Jesus is like, hey, by the way, the actual way you get to be first is by being last and a servant to everybody else. This is a concept we keep talking about in the house here all the time especially the boys. Ricky Bobby was wrong. What Ricky Bobby should have said is if you ain't last, you ain't first. (laughs) But what you can see here, family, is that to escape the trap of hedonism and selfishness, that that I-focused life, that me-focused life, we can only do that by following Jesus through humbling ourselves and drawing ourselves into a servant-focused life. But here's the kicker. The servant-focused life is not a life devoid of pleasure. Not at all. Some Christian movements have gone that way, right? We're just Anything that's potentially pleasure-seeking because sin could be involved in it, we, just, we, we don't even want to be part of it. But that's not true. I would actually argue that the life in Christ as a servant of Christ is actually where pleasure can be truly enjoyed because it's where we put pleasure in perspective. God created pleasure. He made certain things to feel really good, that they are enjoyable. There are foods that are wonderful. There, there, are, there are things in our life that we get to enjoy. We have dominion over our environment, and we are called to shepherd, right, and, and to care for, and there are things that we can enjoy. But like all the time we talk about here over and over again, it always goes back to priorities. Because Psalm had the worship and, and the quest for his pleasure above the worship and his quest for his relationship with God. The people that I worked for had the the worship of their success or their pursuit of their pleasure above their pursuit of the Lord. And the order really matters. Because if Christ is our head, if he's above all else, then we're driven to live a life like Christ lived. And then the beautiful thing is, when we live in that manner that Jesus did, as one who comes to serve and not be served, we get to actually better enjoy all of this world designed by God. Because when we aren't chasing after pleasure, we get to fully be present in what we're actually enjoying, whether it's food or music or sex. When we're enjoying those things and the boundaries that God has created for us to enjoy those things, we get to just fully enjoy them. They don't define us. We just get to be present in them and really enjoy them because we know that we're not enjoying them in a way that's going to cause us guilt or cause us shame or cause us problems. We're doing it the way God designed it. 
So when you get to live this servant-filled life for Christ, you avoid the meaningless that comes with hedonism and pleasure-seeking, right? Because if hedonism and pleasure-seeking are number one, all of your identity is tied up. And if it's not good enough, it's not perfect enough. That's that life that Solomon talks about that I witnessed firsthand of being dead in your sin and deep in your hedonism, chasing the wrong things, toiling, and but never receiving that pleasure that you thought that it would. But the servant of Christ is full of joy. We get to embrace life each day because it actually has meaning. Your life has purpose. Your pleasure too has a purpose. It's not vanity. You are a servant with a purpose. And being a servant, you can better enjoy the bounty that God has provided you. Because you're not defined by that pleasure, you're defined by your status in God. Pleasure doesn't lead your life, Christ does. So the charge for this week as we leave here is how we can think about how to place it, how we're going to be placing ourselves as servants to others. Living out that servant life, enjoying the pleasures and the gifts that God provides us, but we do it in the manner in which He intends us to enjoy them. And then we do enjoy them. That's why we come here to fellowship. We have good food and, and good drink because we're enjoying in the pleasures that God has given us together in the right boundaries for it. So we're going to go out into the, uh, into the world this week. We're going to focus on being in, servants, uh, in service to others as servants of Christ. And we're really going to think about to be first, you must be last. How different that is for the whole world. And I've said this before, it's not in my notes. But if everybody spent time focusing on serving other people, everybody's needs actually get met. This isn't some socialist, communist, like, split. And there, there are sometimes people that, that try to adjust Christ's scripture to fit in. That's not what it is. But what it is, is when I'm caring for you like my brother, when I care about your problems, your issues, I own them because we're brothers and sisters together in a family, in a body, we are responsible for each other. So I know I will be serving your best needs and you'll be serving my best needs because we're doing it under the authority of heaven. And everybody goes away crazy satisfied and we get to enjoy the things that God has given for us. So that's where our focus needs to be in our interactions this week. So let's pray.